Welcome back to another Cardinals Off Day podcast. We are very excited to be back with you. Uh, this is Ben Godar, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend, Ben Humphrey. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mr. Godar. Uh, my aunt, my aunt Lore, uh, every year she sends me a card on opening day, a happy, a happy opening day card. Um, and she also just sent a a package of Easter presents for the boys, and she got Lane a, a new St. Louis Cardinals cap. So uh, Lane is very excited because he now has a Cardinals hat with the bird on it, the gotcha. Sunday alternative for our listeners. And then he has one with STL on it now too. And it's it's kind of in the style of like, it has the current STL logo, but it's in the style of like the 40s with the red bill, and it's very cool. And uh, Lane looks very sharp, and he's very proud of it. Excellent. And so uh, we we have had a good Easter week. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Aunt Laura sounds like a aunt of the year. Uh, oh, she she is a a wonderful woman, and uh, her son Peter is a listener of the podcast, so he will probably be able to relay this to his mom. Uh, She's very wonderful. And she uh, made the drive down for opening day. And so she got to see the Cardinals drum the Pirates uh, in not great weather. uh, But when you win, the weather is never quite as bad as when you lose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, you and I were unable to make the drive down for opening day, but we did uh, We did get together with a couple other uh, local Cardinals uh, fans at my house, enjoyed some uh, some toasted ravs and some other uh, 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 and some beers, frankly, and uh, enjoyed that game very much. But we've had uh, uh, not quite two weeks, I guess, of, of games, and I guess how you want to count it with all the rainouts. Uh, but uh, uh, Ben, what have we learned so far? Um, I, I think that we have learned that the Cardinals uh, have more depth, uh, both in the lineup and then also in the bullpen, than I, I think many of us thought they had going into opening day. Um, and so I, I'm very interested to see how that plays out with the talent they have uh, at the high levels of the minors who are who are knocking on the door of the majors, both for the rotation uh, and then also in the bullpen uh, and uh, on the bench there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as I thought about what have we learned, of course, my first thought is we haven't learned much because <laughs> we just haven't <laughs> had enough. We just haven't had enough games. You and I talk about that. I know everyone talks about that. It's one of those challenging things. We all know it, but it is it's tough because once we're seeing actual meaningful games, especially when we see things that confirm uh, the way we want things to be, it's easy to buy into them. But, uh, you know, for example, uh, Tommy Edmond uh, hit two home runs against the Milwaukee Brewers from the left-hand side of the plate. Now, if Tommy Edmond were to suddenly add some power from the left side, that would really transform his profile and make him a much more useful player. Uh, the problem is we don't know if he's done that yet. <laughs> you know, it's the, he's hit home runs from the left-handed side before. Uh, you know, should he continue this um, and and uh, you know improve show real improvement on that side? You know, that'll be something real, but we just can't know that yet. Um, so, you know, as I rack my brain for what what have I seen that I really feel like I've learned? Um, the one thing I think we've learned, and I think I said uh, maybe last time we got together too, that I was going to be watching for the the kind of moves that Ali Marmol would make. 
And I don't think we've seen enough to really say, well, this is what kind of manager he is. But I do think we've seen enough to say that, uh, you know, it's not going to be an, an immediate drastic transformation from Mike Schilt. And I think if you were to look at the box scores of this, uh, you know, these first run of games, um, if you if you had arrived uh, as a time traveler and were not aware that Mike Schilt had been dismissed as manager, I don't think you would uh, suspect that he had been. Um, I think, you know, it's been running it more or less the way that Schilt had. So, um, you know, some of the the storyline, of course, with Ollie coming in was that, you know, maybe he was going to be more flexible, more open to some things the front office wanted to do. We haven't seen anything drastic yet, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to see some real meaningful changes over the course of a season, but we're going to have to watch for longer than a week to, to figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to kind of piggyback, uh, you know, your point with respect to Marmol, you know, when they got Pujols and when they signed Dickerson, that he, you know, he was talking about playing matchups based on pitch type and swing plane and this, that, and the other. And uh, then when Pujols was starting uh, the first game of the series against the Brewers, he was like, oh, I just wanted to see how he does against this pitcher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, right. like no greater uh, insight than, you know, we just right. want to see how he looks. And, right. and, 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 this, I, and I saw oh, a lot of people pulling their hair out online about that and thinking, oh, of course, you know, he's going to start Pujols all the time. But I thought, you know, we can't even make that conclusion because, you know, over the course of a year, even in a more of a, a, a platoon situation, was Pujols going to start sometimes against a right-hander? Yes, he was. And we saw one really early on there. And, you know, so is that a trend? We don't know yet. The, the other thing is we, we had a very short spring training, and that is something that is very easy to lose touch of once the games for real start. And I saw it with all the Clayton Kershaw perfect game commentary on Twitter, yeah. you know, and, and then they interviewed Kershaw after the game. He's like, my slider had no bite for two innings. It was past time for me to come out. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. like I'm not to the point where I could have, you know, gone on without risking an injury. And with respect to Pujols in particular, um, when they played the nationals right after uh, Pujols signed, uh, Juan Soto was watching Pujols, and I can't remember if it was Davey Martinez or Juan Soto shared with one of the Washington Nationals beat writers something along the lines of, uh, I can't believe how ready he is to hit so early. Yeah. And what Juan Soto was saying is, you know, they all kind of eased the water you know, like, like we grownups do when we go to the pool, right? Like we aren't like little kids. We don't just dive into the deep end or do a cannonball. We just kind of go to the shallow end and ease our ways in. But Pujols, by all accounts, and also even if you look at him, I, I think you would be hard pressed to deny that he looks like he's in, in better physical shape than he was last year. Um, but then you have someone who knows a thing or two about hitting Juan Soto saying he was surprised at how ready Pujols was that early. Mm -hmm. But what we don't have, we don't have any sort of counterpoints, like how ready is Dickerson or not, right? right. How ready is Lars Newtbar? He went to driveline. I think, I think Lars Newtbar is probably pretty ready. But when you're looking at that, and, and this is the type of information that a lot of times we are not privy to as fans, and even in the media, even sometimes beat reporters aren't. 
like what are the conversations between Marmol and the options that he has on a given day? And right. and one of those options are is Pujols, who looks in good shape, who impressed Juan Soto with how prepared he was to go and play. And so, you know, I I'm I'm not pulling my hair out over Pujols starting against a right-handed pitcher in April. Now, if he doesn't hit and this continues into like July, then it's a problem. But right yeah. now, they they had a shortened spring training. Uh, they're still sifting through options. And also, players are still getting into game shape to an extent. And so yeah. I think that's something we need to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll be uh, touching on Pujols a little bit later as well. Ben and I each have a couple kind of... Um, uh, I don't know, observations or takes, I think would be what we call them these days, right? We have a couple takes um, we're going to uh, talk about later on that, that are things we do feel like we can, you know, talk about this early in the season. Um, so we'll be getting to those. We also um, got several questions from listeners, which we always appreciate. We're going to answer some of those as well. But before we get to that, Ben, uh, we do have uh, another sponsor this week. So let me get this ready and read here. Uh, this episode of Cardinals Off Day is brought to you by Mike Schilt's Red Asphalt. Spring is here, and as the ice melts, we're all getting a look at our driveways. Maybe there's cracks in the concrete. Maybe you've got gravel or even just dirt. Bottom line, that driveway is a mess, and you need to control that mother. Pour a big old layer of Mike Schilt's red asphalt. It'll be a little rough at first, but you can smooth it over the next day. That's Mike Schilt's red asphalt. It's coming in hot. And again, we thank uh, Mike Schilt's red asphalt as we do all of our sponsors. Uh... Ben, uh, we've each got a couple topics. Do you do you want to go first? Or you want me to jump in with one of mine? Oh, uh, you can start off. Well, sure. Well, I you know the the first topic that I kind of wanted to talk about was uh, Adam Wainwright, and specifically, um, you know, there's this really interesting thing going on where uh, everyone, um, you know, from the media to I think even some kind of front office folks uh, seem to be lumping Wainwright in with uh, Molina and Pujols and talking about this being their last season together. And of course, what's interesting and notable about that is Adam Wainwright has not said this is his last season. Uh, And so, you know, it it seems like uh, people want to bury Wainwright alive with Molina and Pujols, like one of the Pharaoh's wives. Um, But he could keep doing this for several years to come. And and that was uh, something that I just kind of started thinking about, uh, you know, well, should Wainwright be retiring at this point in his, in his career? And so I, I dug into some numbers and uh, it's it's interesting. So uh, in 2017 and 2018, uh, it really looked like it was the end of the line for Adam Wainwright. He pitched 123 innings in 2017. He only pitched 40 innings in 2018. He had an 83 and an 88 ERA plus those two seasons. So that really sounds like in the line kind of time. He was 36 at that point. All right. Well, then in 2019, he pitched uh, over 170 innings. Um, and for the, the last three years, so 2019, 2020 and 2021, um, he's pitched a, a, a full workload. Um, and obviously 2020 was a shortened season. So there's a little bit of an asterisk there, but to the extent there was a season, you know, he was in there for a full workload and uh, his uh, ERA plus is up to 115 uh, over that, over those three years. Now, over those three years, Ben, only 10 pitchers have pitched 425 plus innings with an ERA plus uh, as high as Adam Wainwright has. 
So you could legitimately call Adam Wainwright a top 10 starter over the last three years. And if you wanted to look at it in terms of wins above replacement, he's uh, he ranks 13th. So still, you know, essentially, you know, top 10, top 13 starting pitcher over the last three years. Um, you know, just on the face of it, I'd say that doesn't sound like a guy that needs to retire necessarily. Um, and so just as I kind of started thinking about comps for Adam Wainwright, um, you know, I just I started thinking about all these guys like him who had these long careers and some of them, uh, you know, as they hit their late 30s and 40, it seemed like they kind of started cruising and their careers sort of went on longer than you expect. So I, I dug into the numbers on that and I was really surprised at what I found. So I looked at the the wild card era. So this is like 1995 until now. And uh, 44 pitchers have thrown seasons of more than 150 innings after the age of age 37, okay? And I just picked 150, felt like a reasonable number for like a kind of more or less close to full, if not a completely full, healthy season for a starting pitcher, okay? So 44 pitchers have done that. Now, 18 of those pitchers only did that one time, you know, probably in that age 37 season, and then their career was over, okay? 26... Um, did it once or twice. So the majority of those 44 pitchers, they only did it once or twice. All right. Adam Wainwright has now pitched three full seasons um, of, you know, full season worth of workload after the age of 37. And when you start to look at that list, it it gets um, way more rarefied. And you see those guys are much more likely to actually continue that into the future. Okay. So of the 17 pitchers that have done it three times, 11 of them did it four times. 10 of them did it five more times. Eight pitched six more seasons like that. And uh, Jamie Moyer did it 10 times. <laughs> so, and Jamie Moyer is probably still throwing 200 innings in a Caribbean league somewhere for all we know. So um, I threw a lot of numbers out there, Ben, but, you know, I, I, the, really the, the point is, you know, a guy who can kind of bear a regular starter's workload at age 37, age 38, age 39, the way Adam Wainwright has, there's really not reason to believe that age 40 is absolutely the end of the line for him. A lot of these guys are able to tack on, you know, a few more and even several more seasons after that. So, um, and I remember from our uh, preseason chat with Dan Zimborski about his zips projections, or Oral Hershiser was uh, Adam Wainwright's number one comp. And of course, Oral Hershiser is on this list. He's a guy who did that as well. So, that's what the numbers I found say, Ben. What do you think? Do you buy into that idea that Wainwright can can keep doing this, or at least there's a good, you know, reasonable chance that he can? Yeah, I think he he could if he wants to. Um, I think you know, coming off of that that start he had against the Brewers, where it just wasn't working, I think you can see how it might end for him. Sure. And and hopefully it's not this year, and it's, it, you know, and you can you can go through and it's been well documented and and uh, you know he has been very good with his control, and he he paints the corners he lives on the black, and that is how he is effective. Um, and I really appreciated on opening day when his first pitch uh, was almost certainly outside, but was kind of close, and Bush Stadium booed the umpire. Um, because it's almost as if we all just know he needs to get those calls, uh, on the corner 
to be effective because he doesn't really, he, his curveball is still good, but he doesn't have the other stuff to live uh, and, and thrive if he is uh, living more toward the heart of the plate. And against the Brewers, he was struggling with that location and they hit him around uh, pretty solidly um, and won the game as a result. And so we've had a, a very good start against the horrible Pittsburgh Pirates and a not so good start against a Brewers lineup that's not that great. And so obviously it's still very early, but what he has done the last uh, few years uh, before this one, uh, including the weird shortened 2020 season, but um, you know, that would lead you to believe he can do it, but he's also at an age where sometimes, you know, that ability erodes slowly or quickly. And so it will be interesting right. to see if he can still uh, be effective doing what he has done so well in the late stage of his career. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but, you know, I feel like myself and, and many of us, but certainly myself, you know, I've been saying for years like, well, geez, he can't keep doing this. He's so old. They can't rely on him. And he's just he's done it several times now. And and so I w- it was interesting to look at the comps and see, you know, uh, the guys that are done around, you know, maybe 37, you see a lot of guys that like that's the end of the line, but the guys that can push past that for multiple seasons, the way he has, you know, really do tend to stick with it. And so that list real quick of folks that have thrown more than three seasons after the age of 37 with 150 plus innings in this period, you've got Jamie Moyer, Greg Maddox, Kenny Rogers, Randy Johnson, Roger Clemens, R.A. Dickey, Tom Glavin, David Wells, Bartolo Colon, uh, Tim Wakefield, and Oral Hershiser. So that's that. That's the company that he's in right now. And overall, that I hear a lot of comparables to Adam Wainwright in there. Now, obviously, you got a couple uh, knuckleballers in there. That's an asterisk. You've got Roger Clemens in there, hopped up on steroids. You know, that's a bit of an asterisk. But you know, a lot of those other guys, you know, they're they're guys who you know learn to pitch with um, you know not real high velocity and uh, just were able to you know to cruise and be successful for a while. So. Anyway, um, you know, yeah, at at this stage, anything, you know, any kind of significant injury or you're right, his will to pitch could certainly end his career. But I don't think it's unreasonable to think that he could keep this going. So, um, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, ushering him off the field if he wants to keep pitching, especially given the rest of the Cardinals starting pitching options. (laughs) So I think they should. Well, and, and who knows? He might add a knuckleball. Yeah, right. It it, that would be a very Adam Wainwright thing to do, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, add a knuckleball and, and pitch for seven more seasons. Um, I would love it. I would love it. So, uh, so anyway, Ben, that was my, my first kind of topic I wanted to hit. Uh, what's, what's, uh, something you wanted to, um, it's very early as we've discussed, uh, but I wanted to touch on Albert Pujols and, and what he has done here in the early going, cause it's really weird. And this is the type of weirdness you get. Uh, when you're dealing with a a very small sample size, whether it's batted ball profile or results. But, um, you know, so far uh, early this season, he has been making really good contact, like not a lot like at the high end of the exit velocity scale. Um, But he is when he's making contact, he's making uh, very good uh, contact and driving the ball. Now, his uh, hard hit percentage is up uh, 
high amongst his peers. Uh, we're recording this on Saturday, and it was at 89%. His average exit velocity is in, or is in the 89th percentile, excuse me, and his average exit velocity is in the 94th percentile. His expected weighted on base average in the 94th percentile. Uh, his K rate is excellent as per usual in the 99th percentile. And his his walk rate, he's, he's working walks at a rate he hasn't really done uh, in, in many years. Um, and the funny thing, though, Ben, is that uh, just take a guess what percentile his barrel percentage is. Well, I would guess it's pretty low, but you're, you're presenting me a lot of things he's doing well, so it may be higher than I'm expecting. His barrel, per, he is in the, the first percentile of, oh, okay. of barrel rate. Okay. So he, there's, there's no one lower, right? Like there's, there's no zero, you know, in, in this. So, um, but despite all that, you know, he, he's, he's making good contact. Uh, he's uh, getting on base. Sometimes he is trying to steal third base uh, after he gets on base in, in, an, Ill, in an ill-advised manner. Um, but if you look at his expected numbers, you know, he, even with the low barrel rate, he's making good contact and you would expect good results. And he's doing things in terms of exit velocity he hasn't done since they started measuring it in terms of what he's averaging. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you look at his expected stats so far, he's doing things he hasn't done since baseball savant and Statcast existed. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting to me is he's feasting on fastballs and, uh, you know, just looking at, you know, he's usually teams were throwing him in, in the, you know, mid to high fifties, sometimes into the sixties as a percentage of fastballs. And then last year, uh, they started throwing him more breaking balls and fewer fastballs. And then this year, he's actually seen more breaking balls than fastballs. And he's done a good job of uh, laying off of them for, for the most part um, and has done an exceptional job of finding fastballs and making good contact with them. All of this is to say that it seems to me that Pujols is going to have to keep finding those fastballs and doing damage on them. And it looks like his bat is going to be able to keep doing that in terms of speed and uh, his ability to drive those harder thrown pitches. And so uh, all of this is very interesting to me. It's still very early, obviously, but that's something for us to all look at and keep an eye on is how many curveballs and sliders are he seeing or is he seeing? And um, then what is he doing with the fastballs in the zone when he gets them? And if he continues to feast on them, this is going to be an excellent signing for the Cardinals and a wonderful farewell tour. And he might even flirt with uh, 700 home runs because he's going to be hitting enough to merit that kind of playing time. And it's all been pretty fun to see. Oh. And I'll be honest, Ben, in the back of my head, I was really worried that we were going to have like a Tino Martinez type situation here where <laughs> the fans are trying to will him to get hits and it just doesn't work out. And then right. everyone kind of sours on him. And I know Pujols has way more history with the Cardinals than Tino Martinez, but I, the, the beginning of the Tino Martinez era and really the whole Tino Martinez area, but in particular, 
There, there wasn't anything beyond the beginning of the genome. There was a beginning and then it was over. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and uh, I've... Uh, I was just very worried that we would kind of have a similar dynamic or something maybe more akin to the end of the Alan Craig era. Yeah, and uh, so, so far he's given us reasons for optimism and yeah. it'll be interesting to see if he can keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's exciting. And, and uh, I just, I have to say aesthetically, I always enjoy watching like great players kind of cobbling it together at the end of their career. And I, I think I've mentioned before, like one of my favorite pitchers to watch was uh, Pedro Martinez when he was on the Phillies. And, uh, you know, his velocity was way down. He, you know, was kind of had put on some weight. And, you know, he just, he did not have his elite tools anymore, but he still just was able to like cobble together the the pieces he had left enough to be effective. Now he'd often be effective for five innings and they'd send him out for the sixth and he gets shelled. But I, I still just, it was, uh, you were watching a craftsman at work. And so I could see uh, similar enjoyment watching Pujols this season, you know, with what he can still do, you know, can he craft a good season? I think he should take stealing third off the list of things that he can still do though. Um, I don't know, man. He got a great jump. Like he ran so far before anyone on Milwaukee noticed what he was doing. Right. It was then, incredible. Then that, that's the problem is he, <laughs> he did get a great jump and he was, he was still out by like uh, a minute and a half. So I think <laughs> the, the third baseman pulled his phone out and checked Twitter like while Pujols was sliding before he had to apply the tag. So um, <laughs> I don't know. We may, may not see that. So, all right. Well, um, so for my second topic, um, you know, my first one was a, a really positive thing about a Cardinals pitcher. So just to keep the universe in balance, I'm going to be I'm going to be somewhat negative about a Cardinals pitcher. And I am going to talk about Jake Woodford. Um, now, Jake Woodford is a, a pitcher who pitches for the Cardinals. And, uh, you know, he's a guy who's out there. He's in the bullpen. He's sort of in that mix for, you know, we've talked about the idea of the, you know, the seven man rotation or the eight man rotation. You know, he's he's a guy they could, you know, they could plug in there, you know, to give some starts at some point in time. And I, I continue to hear and see a lot of people saying, you know, they think he deserves that shot. And, you know, um, you know, why did Hicks jump over him, et cetera, et cetera. And, and first off, um, the competition in front of him is not great, right? So if it comes to it, you know, if they if they have a need, I certainly think it makes sense to give Woodford a shot. And I don't think he's, he's that much worse than a lot of the options that are already rolling out there. But I really want people to pump the brakes on the, uh, you know, the idea that we have any reason to think that he's going to be particularly good at it. So um, looking back at last season, so last season, uh, you know, Jake Woodford had a 3.99 ERA, which is pretty darn good. You know, that's definitely good enough to be a back end of the rotation kind of guy. Um, and again, certainly better than what we've seen or could expect from some of the guys that are getting a shot in the rotation. His fielding independent pitching number was 4.5. So, you know, not, that's not terrible, but that's, you know, you're like, okay, there's, you know, some, some things uh, in the ERA that aren't maybe reflecting the underlying skill there. And then if you go all the way out to his, his uh, XFIP, which uh, is the same as fielding in independent pitching, but it takes the actual um, home run rate and regresses it to um, the league average, um, you see a 5.06 there. And I think that's worth noting because last season, if you looked at uh, Alex Reyes's first half of the season, he had a great ERA 
his FIP was actually pretty good, but his ex-FIP told us that whole season long that 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 blow up was coming well before we actually saw it, you know, like we saw the balls actually uh, flying out of the ballpark. So I think that's worth noting. Um, Now, uh, you pointed out, Ben, and others have pointed out that uh, Woodford has really increased his sinker usage. Um, and, and, and the Cardinals are, are, you know, having him pump sinkers in there, look for ground balls, which makes sense. That's what they're doing with all their pitchers. And when you have a guy who's not a strikeout pitcher, why not? Right. That seems like the thing to do. So just for some context in 2020, and he, he didn't have many innings in the big leagues, but at least in terms of pitch mix, you know, we can still know this is what he was going out there trying to do. He only threw 1% sinkers. Okay. And he, he got a 45% ground ball rate. Last year, he bumped that up to 36% sinkers he was throwing, all right? But uh, his ground ball rate actually sagged slightly to 41%, and uh, as a starter, it was only uh, 38%, all right? So he was throwing more sinkers last year, but we weren't really seeing the ground balls that you would expect from that. For context, 43% is league average um, uh, ground ball rate. So he's actually a slightly below league average, which again, we're not seeing that profile of the kind of heavy ground ball pitcher that you think you could get. And so to put that in context of the guys who are in the Cardinals rotation, all right, you've got uh, Adam Wainwright, 48% ground ball rate, Miles Michaelis, 49%, Steven Matz, 46%. Dakota Hudson uh, over his career, 57.5. Jordan Hicks over his career, 63%. Okay, so huge ground ball rates are at least, you know, markedly higher than uh, than Woodford for the rest of those guys there. Okay, Um, then when you look at strikeout rate, okay, and again, none of these guys are, you know, the Cardinals just don't have, you know, big strikeout pitchers. All right, but Woodford is still at the bottom there. So, uh, of these guys, uh, you know, in the starting mix there, you've got uh, uh, Matt's at 26% strikeout rate, Hicks 23%, Wainwright 21%, Hudson 18%, Michael is 17%, Jake Woodford 15%. Okay, so he's not he's not striking guys out either. Um, uh, in terms of walk rate, his walk rate is is kind of fine, not great. All right, so what do you get when you add all that up? I'll be honest, I just don't see a lot of reason to be enthusiastic about about Woodford. Now, in his his uh, one outing, at least as we're recording this so far this season, he was up to throwing 51% sinkers. Okay, so he's leaning in even harder to throwing that sinker. Um, My question is going to be, you know, is that going to lead to a higher ground ball rate? Because if I think it does, well, maybe there's a window for him there to be marginally successful enough to kind of be maybe more in the mix of these kind of low end starters the Cardinals are throwing out there. But as I look at things right now, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, Jake Woodford's the kind of guy you're glad you've got him on your 40 man roster because he can go out there and pitch, you know, it's not a complete disaster, but I don't see any reason to be optimistic. I don't see any reason to elevate him to a more prominent role over any of these other guys. Um, so that's, that's where I'm at on, on Jake Woodford. What, what's, what's your take on him? Is there, is there anything about him that I'm not seeing that you're seeing Ben? Uh, it's, it's the walks. He is the internal Cardinals pitcher who frankly has done what amounts to a, a Dave Duncan turnaround in St. Louis. John Gant couldn't do it. He didn't throw strikes. They shipped him out. You know, Ponce de Leon couldn't do it. They 
cut ties with him, uh, and he's out with the Angels now. Um, what Woodford did last year, um, his walk rate in the first half was 12%, which is terrible, just absolutely terrible. And then in the second half, it was 6%, which is very good. And that's, to me, the stat to look at with him. And the sinker usage is also very interesting. And, and not just the sinker. He has basically become a sinker slider pitcher um, right. for the most part. He hasn't entirely curbed his four-seamer and his curveball and his changeup, but he is definitely focusing on the sinker and the slider more and throwing them to the exclusion of the other pitches. And for that, perhaps that is helping him to reduce his walk rate because he's able to have a better feel for the pitches and use them. Uh, right. More now, now for, for context, though, I'm just going to throw out there. So, so his walk rate over the full season last year was 6.9%. Um, so we 7%, I guess we call that. Uh, Wainwright was at 6%. Michaelis was at 59 or 6%. Matz is at 6.6%. So, you know, he's... He's in the ball, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of in the ballpark of those guys a little bit slightly ahead of him. Now, Hudson has an 11% career walk rate and Hicks has a 13% career walk rate. Rock rate. So, so they're much higher there. Um, you know, Hicks in particular has a much higher strikeout rate as well, which kind of helps that. And of course, those guys are coming out of bullpen work. So it's, a, you know, it's not quite an apples to apples comparison there. But, um, you know, I guess I'm saying even when we look at the walk rate, I think Woodford is, has put his walk rate into the you know, the, the palatable realm, but it's not at like an exceptional level where I see that as really being like a great asset for him as well. This super low walk rate. No. And the thing that's interesting about it is, uh, you know, it's not quite perfect, but, uh, his walk rate basically went up at every level in the minors. Mm -hmm. And when you watch a lot of prospects, what that traditionally tells me is that the prospect doesn't have the stuff to trust it <laughs> right. and he starts to nibble more and more and it culminated uh with an 11.7 percent walk rate in 2019 in AAA, which is terrible just terrible um and and so that led me to believe if you're starting in AAA and you're walking that many AAA batters the odds of you having success in the majors are very low. Um, but he has been able to walk a, a lower share of major league hitters, um, you know, somewhat. And so the, the reduction last year between the first and second half, that's really to me, the thing to watch yeah. because Jake Woodford yeah. does not have the stuff to get strikeouts. If he gets into a jam, right. He doesn't have the stuff to generate ground balls at the rate a Hudson or a Hicks does if they mm -hmm. allow base runners. Because that's really the only way that, that Hudson and Hicks uh, can have a little bit more of an elevated walk rate but still be good pitchers. Right. Yep. Is They generate so many ground balls, they wipe away base runners with double plays. And so, you know, with Woodford, maybe his sinker has improved and he's able to start doing that, which would be reflected in his, in his ground ball rate, but he just doesn't have the stuff to walk the amount of batters that he was in AAA and even in the majors until the second half last year. And I don't want to just wave a magic wand and have his lower walk rate in the second half go away. Right. But right. Well, and I think that's really good context you've provided that there was a shift from first half to second half. And so that's, 
you know, th- that is some underlying um, improvement, you know, we can see there. And, and it's always worth noting, too, he's still a young pitcher, too. So, like, there's always that possibility for some development there. But, you know, I just I always think whenever I look, I'm looking at Jake Woodford, I think about that scene in Office Space with the, the consultants where they say, what is it you'd say you do here? And and I say that because I just, you know, a lot of pitchers, even if they're not very good, like they have one pretty good skill. You know what I mean? And, and you can kind of see, you know, I mean, you know, Jordan Hicks, who, you know, ended up sliding in that fifth spot in the rotation, right? You know, obviously health and stamina, you know, major question marks. His walk rate, definitely higher than you'd like to see as a starter. But, you know, he also can throw 105 miles an hour and has this insane ground ball rate. <laughs> so, like, it's it's certainly not a foregone conclusion that that's a successful starting pitcher. But you can absolutely see what the route forward is to make him that. And Woodford, I just have a hard time seeing, you know, other than a guy who's 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 in like a long man role that's literally just, you know, eat some innings. I just it's hard for me to envision what is it he does that that pushes beyond that. Uh, I don't think much. And it's been really weird. And my natural reaction is to push back as well. But Mosaloc seemed to go out of his way to praise yeah. Woodford. And then you saw the the St. Louis media establishment do it as well. Yep. And I don't want to again, I don't want to minimize he he made improvements in the second half that you would ask him to make. And yes. Yes. and other pitchers did not. And a part of me wondered is Mosaloc doing this to encourage other pitchers who they're coaching and advising, right? Mm-hmm. Um to to adopt some of these approaches, you know, don't mm-hmm. walk people Right. Throw sinkers. Um, and so, something else that Jake Woodford does that they like is uh, is paid the league minimum salary. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that definitely helps. Um, and so it's one of those things where if you look at him, you know, I don't think that they go out and get Verhagen. I don't think that they do that. You know, if, if Woodford really is everything that they're saying in the media. Right. Right. And, you know, I also think if he's everything they say in the media, Jordan Hicks would not have leapfrogged him <laughs> into yeah. the rotation. And also, you know, probably Matthew Libertor or Connor Thomas is the is the next person to leapfrog him, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah it, it's uh, it's not going to be a situation I don't think, unless things go terribly wrong, that we will see Woodford taking the ball every fifth day for an extended period of time this year. Well, yeah, I, I, exactly. Unless we see some big change. And again, uh, even, you know, when we're somewhat, uh, you know, down on guys, it's uh, we hope to see all these guys make big leaps. But I just don't see the the reason there to have the kind of optimism that I hear so many people having. So that was my my Jake Woodford take there. Um, ben, what was your last topic for us to hit on before we get into listener questions? Well, we have been saying for a long time now, and I think most people have picked up on it, that the front office built the team defense first last year, and then they went in and they got pitchers who would do what they needed to do to allow the team to leverage that defense. And they were able to go on a miraculous run and make the postseason. Um, But you'll also recall, I think, last year, uh, then when the heat was coming down on Jeff Albert, uh, Mosaloc 
shared with the press that they were studying whether or not to move the walls in at Bush Stadium mm-hmm. because they had data that indicated that Bush Stadium had become uh, about as extreme a pitcher's park as you could get in Major League Baseball. It was right there with Oakland and Seattle. Um, and so I was wondering what happened to all of this, but then there was the lockout and no one was allowed to talk with the media or anything like that. And so I was really interested to see kind of almost, almost like a Friday afternoon news dump, right? The time honored tradition, but it it was like an, an opening weekend news dump where, oh, everyone is following baseball and talking about all these other things. What about moving the walls in? And they actually, the Post-Dispatch had a good article on stltoday.com about it. And it had quotes from uh, Bill DeWitt, the owner. And basically, they kind of cast a wide net to look at this. And uh, then they decided to shelve it because they think that they might have a competitive advantage. (laughs) And I was kind of chuckling to myself because Dr. Thunder, Stephen Matz, you can go sign someone like Stephen Matz. And if you're playing in the most pitcher friendly, your home games in the most pitcher friendly park in major league baseball, you can approximate the run, the overall run prevention of Marcus Stroman at a fraction of the cost. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, DeWallet Ball says, whoa, 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 hold on a moment. If we have a competitive advantage here, we can sign less skilled pitchers for less money and get similar results to what better pitchers would get in a more run neutral environment. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And uh, I also found it interesting. You know, you talked about Adam Wainwright earlier and, um, you know, the how good he has been and um the the thought of talking about this subject on the podcast after actually kind of came to the forefront of my mind um one because we had talked about it last year but also number two uh, because of wainwright and you know the difference between the ballpark in milwaukee which is very uh much more hitter friendly uh, than St. Louis and Wainwright, you know, has historically not done very well there. Um, but then he goes there for his first start, um, this year and he, you know, kind of gets knocked around a little bit, gives up quite a few runs. Mm -hmm. And it made me kind of wonder, you know, if, if this is your approach and this is what you want to do, um, you know, what is the actual competitive advantage? Yeah, you're going to suppress a lot of runs at home, but your hitters are yep. going to have their offensive production stifled as well. And then what is the effect when you get away from Bush Stadium? And, you know, Adam Wainwright in particular, you know, I think he had, and, and just looking at 2021, he had an excellent year, right? Mm-hmm. But he had a fielding independent pitching it considers strikeouts, walks, and homers, the things that a pitcher has control over, right? Mm-hmm. His his FIP, fielding, fielding independent pitching, was 3.33 at home last year. It was 4.22 on the road. Mm-hmm. And, um, and 
then his his xfip was 3.78 and uh, 4.02 so you you can kind of see maybe a little bit of a of an advantage there on home runs that that went away and kind of sw- the pendulum swung the opposite way on the road where they were maybe giving up more home runs or he was maybe giving up more home runs than you would expect uh, on the road and so I was just kind of thinking this over and they're not going to play all of their games in a pitcher friendly park when they're on the road, of course, but you know, the idea that it's a competitive advantage, you know, to an extent it is, but is it also a competitive disadvantage if you're stocking your team with not as high quality a pitcher as you might otherwise put on the field because right. that guy's going to get an increase in his performance at Bush stadium too. Right. Yeah. But his, his increase is going to make him, you know, Cy Young. Mm-hmm. And so, but then he's still going to be an ace on the road. And so all this got me to thinking, is this really a competitive advantage or is it a profit advantage for DeWallet? Oh, I have a, uh, I have an answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it's, it's DeWallet is the driving force there? Well, I do, um, you know, because I think that, uh, first of all, I think they have found a way to put together a a, a competitive team, you know, a playoff caliber team, probably not a, you know, not a necessarily a win the division, like most wins in the in the league team, but, you know, a wild card, you know, maybe be, you know, in the running for the the division, they found a way to put together that kind of team based on uh, defense and, uh, you know, pitchers who, you know, pitch to contact, but, you know, get a lot of ground balls. And, you know, those are not expensive assets. And so I think that, uh, you know, by stocking the team and leaning into that, you know, it's, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's just a, it's almost a, a it's just a very money ball kind of, um, you know, how to, you know, um, how to win an unfair game with, you know, fewer resources. Now it's fewer resources because they choose to spend fewer resources, but I think that's absolutely a big reason that they're building the team this way. Don't, don't you? Yeah. I, I think, uh, the organizing principle is to spend less wherever you can. And, um, you know, you look at then the even even acquiring Nolan Arenado, you know, they did that and they got a discount, almost like a rebate, you know, like the Rockies sent money (laughs) for the Cardinals to take the contract. And, uh, you know, about the only player that is really kind of like a throwback to the jockey era of acquire and and sign is uh, Paul Goldschmidt, where they traded for him and they gave him something pretty close to market value. Although, uh, you know, and this is a topic for another day, it seems like Major League Baseball finds the market value of, of first baseman who hit home runs to be uh, going down of late. But, you know, that's really, you know, the last time in, in a while that you can really think of they, where they acquired an elite talent and then did what needed to, they needed to do to keep that elite talent. And then you also recall how smug they were after they did it. <laughs> like it had real, like, you're welcome. 
I think is how Will Leach put it on the Scene Red podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm doing my best impersonation of his voice. Um, for it was actually pretty good. Time. It was actually pretty okay. good. I was impressed by um, And so uh, that I, I just, the vibe of that, that press conference is just so incredible. And he did a wonderful job of uh, kind of distilling it. Uh, into that but yeah well i, I agree with you're, you you're welcome cardinals fans i think would be you know like that should be uh you know bill dewitt's uh on his on his tombstone i think that's yeah. you know that's their attitude most it, of the it, time. He, he won't have bill dewitt on his tombstone it will be mr dewitt mr well you're welcome yes um <laughs> I love it. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I think what happened is ownership was like, oh, we're we're suppressing runs. Pitching is very expensive and gets hurt a lot. Why don't we just keep suppressing runs? Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean, I've got to be honest, this is one of those things where it's like, I'm glad to be a Cardinals fan and have an organization that's like smart enough to recognize things like that and, and cap, you know, and, and, and use those for a competitive advantage. The underlying frustration always is that, uh, you know, you know, the DeWitts could and should put more money into this team than they do. And they and, and you know, and they, they could, you know, be better in other areas, you know, and they could, you know, bring in a Marcus Stroman instead of a Steven Matz. They could even bring in, believe it or not, a pitcher like Max Scherzer, who actually strikes people out, but, you know, is, is paid highly for that. And, and, you know, they don't do that because they're cheap. So um, <laughs> it's... It's, that's always just a little bit of a frustration where it's like impressive at what they're, how they're managing their limited resources, but frustrated at how they're artificially keeping their resources limited. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree 100% on your assessment. So uh, with that, I think we can move into some listener questions. But Ben, I don't know if you knew this. We did have a, a second uh, advertiser come on board. And so I do have... Oh, you, another... you had not told me that. That's no, exciting. No, this came in a little late. Um, so uh, uh, this episode of Cardinals Off Day is also brought to you by Mike Schilt's Red Asparagus. Spring is here. And what's the first thing you can expect to come charging out of the ground and across your fields? Mike Schilt's Red Asparagus. Always early always read, ask for it by name. So, um, you know, a lot of, um, and I'm glad to see that Mike Schild is, you know, branching out and kind of the entrepreneurial spirit is, you know, maybe that was sparked by, you know, being let go by the Cardinals. So who knows, it could be a great kind of second act for him. It, it could be. I feel like, uh, you know, all of these red products would have played much better when he, his primary, the, his team's primary color was red as opposed to brown. Absolutely. But you have to figure that these, you know, these products and businesses were well in the works, you know, probably, you know, at least 12 to 18 months ago. And so, um, you know, before he knew what what was going to befall him. So, you know, you know, kudos to him for, you know, keeping it going. And, and, uh, you know, I wish him wish him luck in his entrepreneurial endeavors for sure. So, um, but with that, I want to move into some some listener questions, and um, and, and we, we put out a call for questions a little bit before we recorded. But you guys can always send questions to us, like even if it's not an off day for you know a, a week or two, we'll, we'll keep track of them. Kind of love to hear from you guys to know things you're interested in talking about, and you know it's always just nice to interact with folks. So, first question we have been uh, at Redbird Nerds asks, which bullpen arms do you think will be the best high leverage guys in 2022? Um, I, I'm going to, obviously the chalk is Gallegos. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of the better, has been one of the better relievers 
uh, in uh, baseball, frankly, yep. um, for a few years. And, um, you know, I, I expect him to continue to do that. And I'm, I'm generally interested to see with Marmol talking about, you know, maybe not having a capital C closer, what that means with respect to his usage. Um, mm. that, that's obviously an easy pick. Um, my second pick is Helsley. I mean, I have, I have long been, uh, impressed with Helsley's stuff. Uh, last year he had troubles finding the plate. I think that was probably due to his injury. Yep. And, uh, you know, he has come out of the bullpen this year and still has the same gas. And it looks like he's got uh, a better idea of where it's going this year. Uh, probably because he is healthy and, and, you know, he's able to land and get follow through and everything on his pitches. And so, you know, I think Ryan Helsley is someone who could find himself in quite a few high leverage situations yet this year. Yeah. And Helsley is somebody I was going to mention as well. And just the eye test watching him this year. I mean, the stuff just pops that, that slider that he throws to like the bite on that is just absolutely nasty this year. And, and yeah, I think, uh, he was injured. And then even after he was injured, you suspect that maybe he was, had made some adjustments because of the injury that were kind of holding him down. But, but I think that's a good example of one of the reasons that this is a hard question to answer because, you know, I, I think I've said in the past, uh, bullpen, uh, arms should be treated like cattle. Um, because there, there's just such a thin line for any of these guys between not being usable. You know, we talked earlier about Adam Wainwright, you know, a, a talented starting pitcher who's had a very long career in part because he's been able to adapt and do different things because he has such a strong and broad skill set and your your typical major league reliever has you know basically one thing that they do really well and then another thing they do sort of okay that can play off enough of that and so you know if it's injury if it's just anything that they lose effectiveness in that one thing you know these guys can go from like you know your eighth inning setup guy to uh you know like uh you know coaching uh you know florida travel baseball team uh you know overnight so um so that's that's something there the, the only other names i'd throw out Hennessy cabrera i think is right up there too he's not the gallegos level chalk but he's been doing it for a while um obviously you know he can really lose lose his ability to hit his spots but he also has just great strikeout potential too so he's you know a guy who you know you know he can walk walk his way into trouble and then strike out his way out of trouble so i think cabrera is still gonna kind of stay back there um i'm really interested in, in andre payante um and i'm of course just getting to really see him much like everyone else is and i think mostly it's the kind of like backup quarterback thing where like he's new so i'm like ooh, look at this guy but um I mean, you can really see what the stuff is there. I love he's got he's got a real like Kershaw delivery. Have you seen that? Um, yes. He doesn't. It's not quite the like kind of double hitch that Kershaw does. But you know, aside from that, it's uh, it, it's very it's very Kershaw esque. And you know, the fastball, the slider, like it just it's it looks it looks really good. And he's young and new, so I, I'm hopeful that you know he could you know, do well, but, um, you know, we haven't seen enough yet to know if, if a bullpen role and a bullpen role this season is, is really where he's going to shine. Yeah. I, I'm very interested to see who stays when the rosters shrink at the end of the month. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, cause there's only so many throws in an arm 
And so if, if they think a guy is going to help them or are they going to do a path of least resistance right. and send him down to the minors? Cause he has options or are they going to keep him up? Um, and a, a pitcher that I'm still uh, very much unsure of and interested to see uh, more from is uh, Aaron Brooks. Yeah. I, it seems like they want him to be a late inning guy. And yeah. so I'm intrigued to see uh, what he shows against major league hitters uh, here as, as the month goes on. Yeah. And you know, he's a guy who just, honestly, I just feel like I haven't seen enough about him and I don't know enough about him to really know, you know, what to expect. But I think the reality is over the course of the season, probably several of these guys are going to sort of shuffle into that, you know, late inning mix, you know, when they're effective, when, you know, depending on the health of other people, you know, Gallegos, as you said, I mean, Gallegos is in a tier by himself. You know, he is elite. He is the one who, again, unless he has injury or something, you know, Gallegos is absolutely the cream of the crop. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of other options there. And that's really exciting, too, as well as got some guys that are on the 40 man that are down in Memphis, um, you know, and potentially even some other guys who could be added later in the season as well. So um, uh, Sarah Ann asks, uh, do you think Goldie will ever hit a home run again? Ben, if you, if you had to lay odds, what do you think? Uh, yes, <laughs> but I, it, we, we recognize the, the the feeling and the wondering. Yes. Oh, absolutely. But you know, something to keep in mind is last year he was making really quality contact early on, mm-hmm. and it just did not show up in the numbers. And so, what happened? He just he kept hitting the ball like Paul Goldschmidt and he basically set the league on fire in the second half because he was, he was so good at the plate. So I, it's way too early uh, to worry. And I think in particular uh, with where he is in the order, um, I think he's going to get a few fastballs to hit and I think he's going to hit them. Yeah, and and worth noting, we're recording this um, before uh, the the end of the series in Milwaukee, and just knowing how well he has historically hit in Milwaukee, you know, he, he as you're listening to this, he he probably hit nine home runs on Sunday, is what I'm saying. So let's just move forward with the assumption that that's the case. But um, but Sarah Ann, we we feel your pain. We want to see Goldie, especially I think with how well everyone else is hitting. You know, really, I think the offense you have to be pretty happy with what they've done. You know overall so far. Um, and speaking of the offense and speaking of the bench, which you touched on a little bit earlier, Ben, uh, uh, Daniel Shoptaw at C70, who I, can we call him the godfather of Cardinals podcasters? I think he's, if, if, at least if godfather means oldest, I think we can get away with that. Can't we, Ben? Um, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but um, also in terms of, uh, just how many podcasts he does. He's That's very true. productive uh, and very diligent uh, and does a very good job. So I think it's a, it's a well-deserved uh, nickname. And I'm sure most folks who listen to us follow him on Twitter at C70, listen to meet me at usual or gateway to baseball heaven or, or uh, uh, you know, read the, the blog or Substack. But uh, Daniel asks, or actually he, he gives us a fill in the blank here. I like the format. This is the best overall top to bottom bench Cardinals offense since blank. And I did a little research on this, Ben, although it was interesting 
um, our first react, both of our first reaction to this um, actually kind of ended up being the right, <laughs> I think the right answer. Um, our instinct said 2015. And I went back and I looked at 2015 and oh my goodness, that was a bench that they had that season. So uh, I'm using baseball reference. And as you guys probably know, if you look at a season on baseball reference, they'll kind of give you like your, your starting lineup, which is the guys who played the most games at those positions. And then they'll list everyone else on the bench. So, you know, some of these guys at parts of the season may have been starters, et cetera, but, but overall, these were the bench guys for that season. Okay. Um, so first off, I'm just going to tell you, these are the guys who had an OPS plus over 100. So these are better than league average hitters that were on the bench. All right. You had Brandon Moss at 105 uh, OPS plus. You had uh, Tommy Pham at 123 OPS plus. You had Steven Piscotti at 130 OPS plus. And you had Randall Gritchuk at a 134 OPS plus. Um, that's a that's a pretty beefy bench, Ben. <laughs> yes, it, it certainly is. And, you know, these players, uh, I think also uh, Greg Garcia, he wasn't better than average, but he was at 98 and he had a, a pretty solid season as well. Yeah. And then you also and had especially for your backup infield, you know, your, your yes. utility infielder to be even close to league average offensive production is really good. And then you had, you know, uh, Pete Cosma with an OPS plus of nine uh, in 111 plate appearances. So, so he, you may remember that was Pete Cosma's best offensive season. And uh, Peter Borges with an OPS plus of 65. Um, and, you know, of course I'm, I'm joking, but uh, those guys were excellent glove men. So they, they had a use when they were healthy and on the mm-hmm. roster and so, you well, know, Ben, were you looking at Peter Borges' well. actual OPS plus? Because his actual OPS plus was seventy. Oh, so I'm you... sorry, I conflated uh, total bases. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actual, I hate to sell him short like that. Right. Um, no, it was yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, 2015, I think is the right answer. Uh, we had also discussed 2013, uh, a year we all remember. Ty Wigginton was the big right-handed bench bat. Um, and I did a little bit of searching uh, just for fun because I'm going to list players uh, who are considered uh, utility from the 2001 St. Louis Cardinals. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because this is one of my favorite benches. Craig Paquette oh, is yeah. listed as utility. Miguel Cairo is listed as a utility player. Stubby Clap and John Mabry. Um, and I, I feel like that is an exceptionally uh, good Cardinals Tony Larusa bench guy uh, year. Can uh, I ask so a question? Speak. Did they have anyone on the bench who could play defense at all? Um, <laughs> well, because it sounds had, like no. <laughs> they had Kerry Robinson, uh, good, who's good outfielder. Who's a good outfielder. Wouldn't plug him in at shortstop, personally. No. And then Bobby Bonilla, who's listed as a first baseman. You'll recall he was supposed to be the third baseman until he got hurt and Pujols took his job. Yeah. Um, But, uh, you know, Pujols actually is also listed listed as a utility player um, for that team on baseball uh, reference. Uh, Because you'll recall that was, of course, his rookie year. And his first home run, I will always remember this, uh, 
and I think it's on YouTube if, if you want to track it down. But his first home run, if I remember correctly, was against the Diamondbacks. And when they were talking about him, like making the team and how versatile he was, and they talk about his ability to play shortstop <laughs> before he hits the home run. And it just, it really warms the heart when, uh, you know, Tony LaRusso probably told the broadcasters like, yeah, pools can play shortstop even. And uh, of course he didn't really play much shortstop uh, and went on to be one of the great first basemen in history. But in 2001, when he first came into the league, they were talking about him as a shortstop. So another utility player from the 2001 bench that I thought was pretty fun. Well, and interestingly enough, that reminds me of Albert Pujols' first career hit. And I don't have this right in front of me, so I'm doing this from memory, but I'm pretty sure after his first career hit, he was thrown out trying to steal second base. Does that sound right to you? I'm pretty sure that's correct. Uh, so. That very well could be. I think the fact that he got a hit uh, in the game that Stan Musial happened to show up at and throw out the first pitch, yeah. the uh, history of the any sort of caught stealing has probably been uh, long ago uh, kind of revised so that yes. that didn't happen. Yeah, and Bernie Miklas tells that story really well about, yeah, uh, it was in Colorado too, oddly enough, but like Stan Musial was in Colorado and like woke in the middle of the night with a strange sensation that he had to get to the ballpark <laughs> and like wandered barefoot across the city and went up to the window and said, I'd like to see the ball game. I'm Stan Musial and ended up throwing out the first pitch. It's it's appropriately uh, mythic <laughs> for, for what, you know, transpired in the, the passing of the torch that day. So I've always loved that story and Bernie tells it really well. So. Um, all right, Ben, we've, uh, we've, we've gone through the questions we have. We're kind of coming up on the end of the episode. So looking forward, uh, what are you going to be watching for? Um, I, I think I'm going to be watching most for um, Hicks and Hudson's usage and how much uh, they're managing their workloads. Yeah. Uh, here in the early going, um, it seems like they're being pretty regimented with Hicks with the rain and everything. They're they're trying to keep him on a schedule and gradually build him up. Um, but it also seems like they're kind of maybe trying to do that with Hudson as well. And so I'm interested to see when, if at all, they let those guys go as a starter and just treat them like a normal starter, like a Michaelis um, type yeah. uh, in a game. Yeah, and it was surprising to see Michaelis, uh, pleasantly surprising to see Michaelis go as deep and be able to go as deep as he did uh, in this uh, Milwaukee series. Um, I'm also kind of going to be on the lookout for something usage related. And I'm just really curious to see, you know, how is Ali going to use this bench that we just talked about that, you know, looks like it's going to be a, you know, a bench, uh, you know, the best one since maybe 2015 or something. Um and again, as we kind of talked about at the beginning, it's it's a little too early to draw any conclusions, definitive conclusions about how he's using it, et cetera. But, um, you know, th there's things that I would like to see him use. I know one thing, um, I think you, you made this point uh, first in our kind of preseason, uh, you know, this bench affords the ability to play matchups late in the game. And so, you know, I, I would love to see some just, you know, for example, let's say you're in like the seventh, eighth inning of a, a close game. Um, and you've got uh, Tommy Edmond coming up facing a right-handed pitcher. Uh, you've got some strong left-handed options probably on, on the bench. 
I'd love to see them bring one of those guys in, you know, make, give a more competitive at bat there, um, you know, and then, you know, bring Sosa in to, you know, play those last couple innings in the field. I mean, Sosa's not as good defensively as Tommy Edmond, but take advantage of the upgrade in offense and, you know, be fine on the defense. But, and again, that's just kind of a random example, but I, I'm just interested to see what we see that kind of, you know, creativity. Um, and of course, just how are we going to continue to see the, you know, the starting lineups shake out? How much is Kisner going to play? You know, that DH position, you know, is it going to be that strict platoon? Are we going to see some more things there? Um, but that, that that's really what I'm going to be watching is Ollie's got these tools on his bench. How and is he using them? Yeah, that will be interesting because they were talking about flexibility and you and I both thought we would see more of a say a Dodgers approach to the late innings where we're going to try to squeeze every advantage we can um, out of our bench by playing matchups in the late innings. And um, it seems like second base and designated hitter would be, uh, you know, how they're using those and then who's available off of that Mm -hmm. uh, would allow for some flexibility in the late innings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Ben, before we wrap up, do you, uh, do you have an off day recommendation for folks? Um, my off day recommendation um, is uh, actually a little bit boring. I think everyone should read because I've already mentioned it. It's not boring overall. It's a very good article, um, but everyone should go to stltoday.com and read the article about moving the walls in because it gets into the different ways they tried to approach this and then what their conclusions were at least about last year and then you also have the quotes from bill dewitt and um i just think if you're a cardinals fan whether or not they're going to move the the walls in uh, is an interesting subject and i think they did a good job with that article uh discussing how the team's looking at it uh i will agree although structurally you know something that was strange about that article to me is it uh, Early on, of course, it talks about moving the walls in and then it kind of shifted gears. And I thought, oh, that's all that's going to be in here about this. But then it comes back in much more detail kind of about it a little bit later on. So so do keep reading because it does go into a lot of detail there. Um, I'm also going to recommend an article for folks to read. And this is not a Cardinal specific article, but uh, Mark Belko, who's a writer for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, um, he wrote an article within the last week, really just great piece of journalism. And basically he and I think some other folks on their staff um, were able to dig through some public information about the Pirates uh, payroll. And apparently they got a lot of this because uh, the Pirates, um, there's some kind of a lease structure involved with their their stadium there. And so they do have to report to the city some of their uh, revenue uh, information. And and the the headline of the story and basically what he found is that the Pirates' entire payroll is covered by uh, tickets bought to the game and concessions. So all of that money covers all of their payroll. So all of the money that the Pirates get from TV deals and all of those other kind of um, MLB revenue streams, not to mention all of the revenue sharing dollars that they collect every year. Those are just going into the pockets of Pirates owners. And that's something that we've we've strongly suspected, if not known for years, that some of these teams are doing. But this is just a really good piece of 
investigation that kind of shows that. On the one hand, this is all specific to the Pirates, but it's just another reminder of just what dirtbags MLB owners are. And that's true for us here in St. Louis as well. And, you know, you just when you hear these people with their, you know, um, you know, whatever they tell you about the, you know, the money they're making, et cetera, um, you know, other than the Braves who are publicly traded, it's all very much uh, in a black box. We don't see it. But anytime we get a peek, this is this is exactly what we find. So um, anyway, it's just a good kind of uh, confirmation of, I think, what we all know and suspect. And this is Bud Selig's vision for Major League Baseball and uh, Bill DeWitt and the other owners locked the players out, uh, cut spring training short, and pushed back opening day to try to make it even more possible for owners to act in this way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So anyway, a um, little bit of a down note there, but overall, of course, we're excited that the, the season's back on. We're enjoying watching Cardinal baseball. Um, ben and I enjoy being with you every off day. We will continue to do that. I want to uh, thank again uh, Devon, who uh, wrote our uh, new theme music that you hear at the beginning and here at the end. Also thank our friend Dan for helping us out on social media. Uh, you can follow us at Cardinals Off Day on Twitter. We'd love to interact with you guys there. And until the next Cardinals Off Day, we'll see you then. Go Cardinals!